In the early 1900s, a man named William Mulholland quietly bought up much of the land and the water that came with it in Owens Valley, California. His plan was to build a massive aqueduct and channel water from the Owens River, which fed Owens Lake, 233 miles south to the growing city of Los Angeles. But a little more than a decade after the aqueduct was finished, it had diverted so much water that Owens Lake was dry. The whole valley changed. Farmers' livelihoods were destroyed. Dust storms plagued the area, impacting the health of families. And local farmers and ranchers became desperate to reclaim their lake and their valley. Then, on a May night in 1924, a group of 40 of these farmers detonated 500 pounds of dynamite on a stretch of the aqueduct just north of town. By the time the authorities arrived the next morning, millions of gallons of water had spilled out of the destroyed section of the wall and onto the valley floor. In the coming years, this conflict became known as the California Water Wars, and there were another seven attempts to blow up sections of the aqueduct and stop diverting water to L.A. In the end, though, Owens Lake remained dry. In fact, it became the largest source of dust in North America, and California has spent over a billion dollars trying to mitigate the dust. Some four or five hundred miles away, farmers in the Beehive State took note of what was happening in California, and they set out to create a system that would serve Utah well for the better part of a century. A built water system that still shapes the future of water in Utah. This is the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. Envision Utah's podcast about how we make sure Utah is a great place to live both now and for decades to come. In the early 2010s, more than 52,000 of you helped us create a vision for Utah in 2050. This podcast is about that vision, what we all want for the future, and what we can do to get there. Utahns envision a future with clean, affordable water to support thriving communities and businesses, robust local agriculture, a healthy environment, and recreation. But how do we achieve that vision in the second driest state in the nation? This is part two in our three-part series to answer that question. In part one, we talked about Utah's natural water systems, Utah's hydrologic cycle, how our snowpack is our greatest natural reservoir, how local and interstate streams carry water and snowmelt to lakes and reservoirs and aquifers. We also talked about the Great Salt Lake and the impacts of climate change. Today, we're going to talk about what we do with the water once it's in our lakes, reservoirs, or aquifers. Who gets to use the water and how do we put it to use? All this will set us up for part three, where we'll discuss the Utah State Water Strategy. To start off today, let's take a look at water rights. Water is declared the property of the public in the very first sentence of Utah State Water Law. That is Dr. Joanna Enterwada, a professor in the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University. Part of her work revolves around water policy in Utah, and she's been involved in multiple water strategy teams and policy groups in her career. She's talking here about who water belongs to in Utah. And so the public in general, the citizens of Utah, have certain rights related to water and access to water bodies. Then people are granted rights to use water subject to various conditions, and that's the prior appropriation water law that puts it to beneficial use. In other words, water in Utah belongs to everyone. But there has to be some order to things, so Utahns long ago decided to establish water rights, the right to take it from its natural source and use it. Specifically, our water law says we have to put that water to beneficial use. Beneficial use is a broad term that includes everything from irrigation to hydroelectric power to recreation to public parks, even to wildlife and game reserves, 
and of course, domestic and municipal uses. The other critical idea Dr. Enderwater mentioned is the prior appropriation water law. That's the principle that the first people to get a water right, to put some amount of water to beneficial use, have a priority to keep using that right. It's known in the water world as first in time, first in right, or basically first come, first served. Think about it this way. You, or your great-great-grandparents, got a water right 100 years ago to, say, irrigate your small farm. Now let's say they got three acre feet. Acre feet, by the way, is the typical unit for measuring large volumes of water, and it means the amount needed to cover an acre with a foot of water. It's a little less than 326,000 gallons. Anyway, that water right stays with the land. So now if you own the land, you own the right to use your three acre feet. Let's also say that your next door neighbors got a water right 99 years ago to use five acre feet for her farm. Because your water right is older, even just one year older, your water takes priority. That comes into play as the water available for you and your neighbor fluctuates. For example, in a really bad year, you might get 75% of your water right, but your neighbor only gets 10%. First in time, first in right. But who's monitoring all of this? Who decides when it's time to scale back? And who makes sure the rules are followed? The primary function of the Division of Water Rights is the general administrative supervision of the waters of the state. And that would include measurement, appropriation, apportionment, and the distribution of the waters. Teresa Wilhelmsen is Utah's state engineer and head of the Division of Water Rights. Her office is responsible for managing water rights, which can date back more than 100 years. You know, we maintain records and provide public access to those records of all water rights within the state. And you can imagine what those records look like. They're pretty old. They're pretty extensive. The Division of Water Rights measures how much water is available and then lets those who hold water rights know how much water they can use. When we distribute the water, there's always some, in some year, somewhere within the state, we're doing priority regulation. Now, this year, it was more widespread, of course, but I wouldn't even want to imagine going through this last year with the priority cuts that we did without the water rights system that we have, because the rules were established, everyone knew what their rights were and what they need to anticipate, and even we did, because we knew what rights were of record. Now, if you're like most Utahns, you might be thinking, I don't own a water right, or there doesn't seem to be a cap on the amount of water I can use. But someone owns the right to the water you're using, and that someone is most likely a conservancy district. A conservancy district is a political subdivision that's in charge of the conservation and development of both water and land to provide the greatest beneficial use of water within the state. There are 10 of these in Utah, and basically they own the water rights and then sell water wholesale to cities or towns or improvement districts. The cities, towns, or improvement districts then get water to residents. If you get your water this way, you don't own a right to a certain amount, and you don't get a letter telling you how much you can use each year. Instead, your water use is measured, and you just get charged for what you use. More on that in a moment. Even a lot of farmers don't own their rights directly. Some water rights are held by irrigation companies, which sell shares of water to farmers or others. Now, before we move on, there are a couple other things relating to water rights. Again, here's Dr. Enderwada. 
So if you're looking at water rights in Utah, you need to recognize that there are various types of rights. There are treaty rights of Native American tribes. There are other reserved water rights for federal lands that have been determined and negotiated and settled. And then there are these basic rights of nature to make ecological systems as a whole sustainable and capable of producing sustained yield of water. In 1908, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Native Americans have the right to draw enough water to enable their own self-sufficiency from the rivers that pass through their reservations. This looks great on paper, but these rights mostly remained on paper, so we call them paper rights. They were rarely considered in a lot of the West's main water compacts, and there's usually no description of how these rights would be accounted for. The basic rights of nature are also a little fraught. The idea is that nature has a right to enough water to maintain ecosystems, but there is little legal requirement for state agencies to manage these rights. Finally, you should probably know that the Division of Water Rights is not the only state agency managing water. There's also the Division of Water Resources, which handles the future of water, as well as the Division of Water Quality and the Division of Drinking Water, whose names are pretty self-explanatory. So one of the challenges in managing water in the state is for those different agencies that have different prescribed authorities and responsibilities to work together to ensure that water isn't depleted, water sufficient quality is available, and that quantity and quality intersection in water is becoming increasingly important. You have to have enough water to have good water quality. Now, if we're really going to understand water in Utah, there are a couple quirks that we need to talk about. Despite being the second driest state in the nation, we have really low prices for our water, and we also use more water per capita than anywhere else in the country. In Moab, one of the most arid metropolitan areas of the state, water users pay between $1.13 and $1.88 per 1,000 gallons of water. Homeowners in cities with similar climates, such as Phoenix, can pay up to 10 times as much. The price of water in Utah is well below the national average, and compared to neighboring states with similar climates, we pay the least amount of money for our water. There are a few reasons for this. For one thing, our state's largest water projects have been federally funded, so we're not still paying the bills for the Glen Canyon Dam, for example. We also live close to the mountains where we get much of our water, so we don't need huge aqueducts to move our water hundreds of miles. Runoff from our snowpack, Utah's greatest reservoir, is gravity-fed, so pumping costs aren't as high as other states. Nature does a lot of the work for us. We also subsidize the costs of our water districts with property taxes, so we don't see the full costs of water in our utility bills. But one consequence of cheap water is that we use a lot of it. To be fair, the claim that we use more than anywhere else is a little complicated. There's no national standard for what's included when states report water use, and Utah includes all potable secondary and reuse water in its gallons per capita per day, while other states don't always use all those. But still, in terms of general public use, not counting farms or industrial uses, we do use more than most, 
and most of that use is on our lawns. We're a desert, remember? We have low humidity, and we typically get less rain in our hottest months than places like Phoenix, but we still have lots of green Kentucky blue grass in our yards, usually watered by relatively inefficient sprinkler systems. We'll talk more about using less in our next episode. For now, there's one more big issue we need to discuss, the Colorado Compact. Let's start with a little history. There are seven western states that rely on the Colorado River Basin. Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Wyoming, and of course, Utah. In June of 1922, the Supreme Court ruled that the law of prior appropriation applied regardless of state boundaries. This led to a little bit of panic as the other six basin states feared California would establish priority rights to all of the water in the Colorado River. So the seven states came together and agreed on the Colorado River Compact, basically agreeing to share the water equally among themselves. It was a really big deal and the first time in U.S. history that more than three states negotiated and collaborated to share the water of a single river. The compact divided the states into two basins. The upper basin, which includes Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, and the lower basin, which includes Arizona, California, and Nevada. The first priority on the Colorado River is the water rights owed to Mexico, then the lower basin states, and then the upper basin states. Uh, the three lower basin states, Arizona, Nevada, and California, have first call on the river. That's Warren Peterson, a seasoned water attorney who has helped write numerous pieces of water legislation. He served on the Utah Board of Water Resources for 12 years and has been on the Utah Water Development Commission since its inception over 20 years ago. He's currently a member of the Utah Water Task Force, which is sponsored by the Utah Department of Natural Resources. And so the upper four states have to satisfy the lower states. That's why Glen Canyon Dam was built. That's why we have Lake Powell, was for the upper basin states to store water so that if the river has high years and low years, then water can be delivered down to California. While this compact was historic, it was flawed. For instance, there's only a single line that references Native American treaty rights, stating that nothing in the compact should be understood to affect the U.S. government's obligation to tribal water rights. The other major flaw, when the Colorado River Compact was drafted, it overestimated the average flow of the river and its tributaries. And tree ring studies suggest that when the compact was negotiated, the period used as the basis for average flow of the river, that was 1905 to 1922, included periods of abnormally high precipitation. As a result, the annual demand for and legal claim to the Colorado River water is 1.4 trillion gallons more than what actually exists. Remember when we talked about paper water before? Well, the Colorado Compact is full of it. The Colorado River watershed serves 40 million people in the West and irrigates cropland that generates 15% of the country's food. With less water in our major interstate streams like the Colorado River, as well as a decreasing snowpack and rapidly growing population and a changing climate, are we looking at a water crisis? If we don't continue to evolve our, our science and our law and our policy, you're going to see a lot of water litigation. You're going to see extreme prices for water in some areas. I think you're going to see a lot of buy and dry where the big interest by the farms instead of being allowed to continue in farming through optimizing water. And you may well see Utah's economic engine shutting down because people will say, do I want to bring a business to Utah where the water supply is so uncertain? Probably not. Do I want to expand my business in Utah where the water supply is uncertain? No. Remember at the beginning of the podcast when we talked about the California farmers who tried to blow up the aqueduct? Well, Utah farmers were paying attention, 
but they didn't resort to dynamite. So they got together and they, they did what's called a general adjudication where they allocate the water. That general adjudication process involves lawyers and litigation, and it's expensive. And at the time, the only courtroom big enough to hold these proceedings with everyone who wanted to be involved was the House Chambers at the state capitol. They said, we can't afford to leave our farms and come up and litigate this thing. So they formed committees. They formed watershed councils and allocated the water, took it to the court, and said, here's the formulas we're going to use for allocating water in each of the major streams, each of the side streams. It's called the Cox Decree, and it was the result of a collaborative effort in which farmers got together and figured out how to allocate their water, how to regulate it, and how to manage it. A little boring compared to dynamite, but much more effective. And that collaborative process has carried us from 1936 to today. So if we get really serious about working together, get very collaborative about it, and with Utah's tradition of being collaborative, it's a culture of cooperation, we'll get there. We'll, make, we'll, we'll have the water we need for our society. But it's not just farmers who are thinking about water this time. With our snowpack in decline, the Great Salt Lake reaching historic lows, and a booming population, more Utahns than ever are thinking about the future of water. The good news? We've found solutions to our water challenges before, and we can do it again, especially with the help of our state water strategy. A 50-year plan for our water future that focuses on conservation, optimization, innovation, and, of course, collaboration. But more on that in Episode 3. Next time on the Your Utah, Your Future podcast, we're going to talk about Utah's latest collaborative effort to look at the future of water, the state water strategy. Our answer to the question, where will our water come from for us, for our children, for our grandchildren and beyond? For now, thanks for listening. Be sure to share this podcast with everyone and anyone, but especially those who care about Utah's future, because water is at the heart of Utah's future. This podcast is an Envision Utah production made possible by Envision Utah supporters and the dozens and dozens of Utahns who have worked with us on the Utah State Water Strategy and other water issues over more than two decades. This episode was written and produced by Shayla Adams with Nate Brown and me, Jason Brown. Special thanks to all of our expert guests, State Engineer Teresa Wilhelmson, Dr. Joanna Enderwada, and Warren Peterson. We'll see you next time for part three in our series on the future of water. <laughs>